But I, I would like to mention that it's super cool that your dad listens to this and then tears us apart. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he does. It's so funny. Not tears us apart, but he, he will correct us on stuff, which is yep. great. Do, are there any, I don't think we have any uh, corrections from the last episode because um, nobody watched that movie. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't think of any uh, off the top of my head. Uh, any glaring issues that we had so i'm sure if we made mistakes we'll find out eventually everyone and welcome back to watch no evil this is matt and this is zach and today we're going to be hitting on the 1999 film sleepy hollow this film is a little bit different than ones that we've done in the past just because it's a little less about the conventional horror stereotypes uh, that we've talked about uh, in previous episodes as well as episodes that we're planning for the future and i think that one of the things that i like about this movie is that it's really clear that Tim Burton is paying homage to a lot of those old school horror movies like the Universal Monster films. Did you get that feeling at all when you were watching it? Well, <laughs> as we've discussed before, I have not seen a lot of like the, the more conventional horror movies uh, like, like the ones that you're mentioning here. Uh, so I actually didn't get that much i mean like i did get this kind of like overall gothic feel from it i I mean i I guess i have seen i've seen psycho and like some of the hitchcock movies and i guess i I did get kind of that vibe right and i mean this this movie is really interesting because it does employ the use of jump scares which are a staple for for horror movies and i think a lot of movies use it as a crutch to appear scarier because sudden scare is going to uh, get our heart rate going faster and faster. And I think with a lot of contemporary horror movies, they try to use the jump scares to trick people into thinking that it's like a scary movie. And in doing so, they sort of remove a lot of the good storytelling aspects. And the nature of this film being an adaptation of the book, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, it doesn't have to employ a lot of those jump scare elements. And so I think that it's not as conventionally scary because we're not seeing as many, you know, frightening sudden images uh, pop up, but rather it's about setting a horrific or thriller-based ambiance, which is really important. Yeah, I would definitely, I think I would classify this as more of a thriller than a horror, just because it's like, it, it blends uh, genres a little bit more, like it's part almost like murder mystery, but also has those horror elements because it's kind of edging on being a slasher movie. Uh, and it does have uh, elements. It's got humorous elements. So it's, I feel like thriller tends to be more of a synthesis of genres more, more so than horror. Uh, and in this, this even contains some action sequences too. I would agree with that. It feels a little bit more cabin in the woods in spirit where there, there is a clear blending of all the different ideas. And a lot of that comes from a really strong and well-pronounced aesthetic, which everybody knows Tim Burton for. And I think, a, a gothic setting it fits really well with that aesthetic naturally tim burton actually said that he made this film with the inspiration of the gothic horror films of mario baba hmm. uh, and the hammer film productions so he actually took a lot of inspiration from those movies which kind of explains that 
uh, kind of paying homage to those those movies. I, I have not seen any Mario Baba movies, I should say. There's an interesting crossover uh, with this movie and the and the uh, Hammer horror franchise, and that's Christopher Lee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Christopher <laughs> Lee was in uh, the Hammer Dracula movies. Uh, yeah, and he was also in Mario Baba's. There is like some Hercules movie. So yeah, he he's kind of been all over this, and also uh, Michael Gao. He's the one who played the the notary mm-hmm. was also, I guess, in some of these Hammer films. Yeah, I mean, it it really was based in that time period of of English cinematography and and filmmaking where they were basically updating what was the Universal monster style. So they really brought about. Uh, an increase in gore and in violence and in uh, a lot of the other sort of horror elements that we we think of as being staples of the genre today. And they were taking classic stories and just going a little further with them, exaggerating them. Speaking of Bava, he had a lot of these movies that had this like basic formula of there's this skeptical investigator who puts a lot of his faith into science and reason, as we see Ichabod Crane do. And then he is tasked with going to a town plagued by a murderous ghost. This is another Baba, general Baba device, I guess. And then he questions his skepticism about the supernatural because he has this experience where he sees the headless horseman. He's no doubt headless. He's not just someone committing murder. It's There's obviously some supernatural going on here. I think that there's an interesting thing to be said in, in that detective that is faced with his own skepticism. And another, I guess, element of comedic irony in it is that Ichabod Crane goes to Sleepy Hollow. People are, are skeptical of him and the trickery that he is doing. And by trickery, I mean the scientific investigation that he's doing. So they're, <laughs> they're sort of skeptical of him and his methods as much as he is skeptical of uh, the supernatural which they all believe without hesitation so there's this there's this mutual skepticism going on that they both sort of resolve at the end of the movie because both his his scientific methods are are deemed reliable and it's clear that the supernatural elements of the film are true as well and i think that that ties into uh, what he's doing with the birdcage where he's uh flipping the birdcage uh, where on one side it's a cardinal and on the other it's the cage. And when they're spinning fast, the oscillation creates the trick that the bird is in the cage. And so it's sort of like two sides of the skeptical coin. Both really do exist. Combined together, they just create a new image. And it's, it's funny that you mentioned that, like the two sides of the coin kind of idea is he when he first presents that the optical illusion to Katrina, just to be like, hey, look at this cool trick. And she's like, yeah, it's it's uh, magic or something. And then mm-hmm. he, he says, truth is not always appearance. So that kind of fits in with your interpretation of, you know, it's just because there isn't a scientific explanation to it, you know, that would be the truth half, but appearance would be there's a supernatural. So kind of uh, they don't always equate, I guess, is the point there. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this movie is sort of about them letting go of of the skeptical nature on both sides. I think, though, that it is sort of not exactly the best in terms of pacing, that resolution of that skepticism, especially because after the horseman kills the magistrate in front of Ichabod Crane, we we switch to Ichabod Crane in his, in his bed saying there was a, a horseman and he was headless and it's all real. And Michael Gambon's just like... <laughs> Yeah, he's we've we told we all told you everyone told you, <laughs> and then it's it's like two minutes later he he emerges from his bedroom and he's like I have faced my fears and I have come out the other side and now we're going to continue moving on. I, I feel like 
in a different movie that might have been paced better, but because of the nature of the story, it makes it difficult to just be able to give Ichabod the type of personality that would be able to overcome that fear, especially because before that we hadn't really he hadn't been proven to the audience. I wonder if it was really originally written that way, or if that's a Johnny Depp move right there. <laughs> because when he's in the bed and he's like freaking out like oh, the, the horseman's real, he's, he really was headless, and he's he's got the blunt blanket like pulled in front of him all. It's it's just very Johnny Depp. And yeah. then to have that turnaround, that, that sudden like shift in confidence is also very Johnny Depp. Yeah, I, I don't think anyone else could have pulled that off. <laughs> I agree. It's just, and of course, it could be another element of the, the comedic irony uh, in this movie. And especially because so much of this movie is reliant on the humor. This movie is really that genre bending kind of film because there are a lot of comedic elements. And then a lot of the horror elements are very much grotesque in essence, the the way that they handle blood splatter in the movie and the way that things are designed. It's it's a little bit more atmospheric. The fog. <laughs> yeah, the fog, the use of the fog, which I think does harken back to uh, the 1950s, 1940s classic horror movie aesthetic uh I, I mean going back to the humor thing there you mentioned the magistrate getting beheaded and killed in front of ichabod and that's when he has that sudden turn of oh there there is this supernatural element uh that death scene was quite humorous i thought he's he's got his uh what is it called that little pendant thing he's got the onk the onk that's what it's right so he's got the onk and, and ichabod goes hey what's what's this about and he said it protects me from the horseman and then the Pretty immediately, the horseman appears, and it's pretty clear that he's going after the magistrate and not Ichabod, so the magistrate starts running away, and then right before he gets his head chopped off, he says, oh my god. And I thought that was a great line, because he's supposed to be this this religious figure, and he, I don't know if it's like this call out to God, it did not seem that way, but it, it was like this one last hey, let's pull religion into this kind of idea. And then the way his head spins on top of his body before it rolls, and then it lands between Ichabod's legs, which I don't know how we want to read into that, but you can do what you want there, I guess. It was just very humorous the way he dies. Yeah, it it is really interesting, too, because you don't necessarily consider the Ankh a Western religious uh, symbol. You know what I mean? I, I would normally associate the Ankh with, you know, Egyptian uh, symbol of, of life and of protection. And I feel like that plays a little bit more into the, almost the witchcraft element of it. This would have taken place during like the Second Awakening, Protestant religious culture where witchcraft would have been super divisive or the idea of witchcraft. And we see that played out in the way that uh, Ichabod's mother is put to death. The witchcraft element to it uh, with that, I think, is is a really interesting parallel, too, because it comes up several times where they're in direct juxtaposition. And I think probably the the most important direct juxtaposition is when Katrina draws the pentagram of protection for a loved one while inside the church. They kind of make a big deal of Katrina practicing, what does he say, white magic or white witchcraft? White magic. Right, white magic, as opposed to Lady Van Tassel and her sister, who are obviously doing the opposite of... <laughs> of white yeah. magic. I think about this movie and the way that witchcraft is is sort of handled in these gothic style films because in in this one it's really sort of hard to get a read on how people feel about it, how the actual characters react towards witchcraft. Obviously, Ichabod's totally cool with it and he's going to let Katrina 
he's going to let Katrina get away with the murders. Uh, so that's that's issue one. <laughs> well, I think that's only because he liked her. <laughs> right. So there's a romance subplot too. add that to the genre right. list. But also that like uh, it shows his mother as being this very pure and innocent and beautiful soul. And, and the only times where we see really vibrant color and light in the movie is scenes with her in it. And then it shows the church as being sort of this false protection because <clears throat> the church is responsible for his mother's death. It is in fact a, a facade uh, behind which is this, these uh, instruments of torture, uh, one of which Ichabod pricks his hands on and where his mother is killed. And then later on, when Katrina is drawing the circle, uh, the church is supposed to be this this manifestation of sanctuary that uh, no harm can befall those inside. And we get three deaths of main characters inside that church too. So there's sort of a commentary on, I would say, religion and like religious persecution. Right. When they're, when they're all in the church, I... <laughs> I immediately said there is so many guns in the church. Mm-hmm. It's very, very American. It's very, very soon after uh, America's birth. <laughs> yeah, and well, it's I the think, well-armed religious militia, right? And I think that's a that's a there's a statement being made there for sure. They they're this it's this place of protection. Yet they bring all these guns and weapons inside. And wh- who is it? Someone literally beats someone else to death with the cross. Yeah, okay, so so Reverend Steenwick and uh kills the doctor with the cross. And think about for a second how quick everyone inside the church, including the reverend of the church, are to basically demolish the inside, totally desecrate the building. He breaks a cross off to bludgeon another man to death with it. Uh, everyone else that's inside, they're, they're pushing pews and they're breaking windows. And they are so quick to just absolutely demolish their, you know, sanctuary. And it's supposed to be this like beacon of, of safety that the, the headless horseman can't cross into, but it's portrayed more or less as like a, a wartime shelter and one that's ineffectual at most. So I think that it's really interesting that there is in this movie such a sharp contrast between the portrayal of witchcraft, which in the film is is mostly used for good. I, obviously, the, the Headless Horseman being controlled to kill people is the negative side, but uh, Katrina, Ichabod's mother, even, even the other witch sister who uses her power to warn Ichabod uh, are, are sort of positive p- portrayals. And then all of the religious figures in the film are portrayed really negatively. Right, and, and bring it back to the church scene. After the doctor is about to reveal part of the whole conspiracy to Altus Van Tassel. And then the the reverend hits him over the head with the cross to get him to stop. And then Baltus immediately shoots the reverend. And then it seems like all the townspeople then in the church, right after he kills the reverend, they all turn on Baltus and they, they're all seem kind of like violent towards him. And he goes like, well, now hold on. And he goes up the stairs. And then that's when he gets impaled uh, by the headless horseman. So it's just kind of funny, like immediately after the reverend is is dead. They they all kind of lose their their sense of religious decorum. obligation. Yeah, I guess decorum is better. You think in a movie that has this vengeful spirit, and they do believe he's coming from hell, and that his his sword is like uh, forged with hellfire and all this stuff. This this demonic kind of presence, and yet that's really the only scene where they mention, or even there's the presence of religion, and it seems like they have. As, as a town, they've kind of lost 
faith in religion being so, like this this thing that can help them with this issue. Uh, it makes me think about the the greater symbolism of the film as a whole, uh, specifically because of exactly what you said with the with his optical illusion that uh, truth is not always appearance and both the witchcraft element appears different than what it truthfully is and it's later revealed at the end of uh, at the end of the movie the uh, the pink circle underneath of his bed he's he's found that but when he's leaving town thinking that you know katrina is responsible for the actual headless horseman he's flipping the optical illusion in his hands and then it becomes a scene where he later looks at the book and he sees the the pentagram and it says spells of protections for a loved one so it's it's like it's trying to show it's trying to connect you that what you see is not what is happening uh and i think that the fact that it's it's that circle enclosed pentagram it's supposed to be connected then to his his optical illusion trick in that the church again it's it's not what it appears uh the truth of the matter is that it's not a sanctuary for them in this instance it's it's in fact uh the opposite it clusters them all together in an easily killable manner <laughs> <laughs> right yeah they, they do a great job flipping the script on the viewer without you really noticing right away like they mm-hmm. usually you think witchcraft bad religion good in these types of movies and they've done <laughs> they've done the opposite yeah and i would say if you watch this movie for the first time it really is impossible to get a read on who the villain truly is right and that's that's the that's a great mystery like it's, it's almost like a murder mystery and the way that it's it's written out and paced there are these scenes where Ichabod is trying to figure it out for himself while it's, it's like those natural moments in the movie where the viewer would also be trying to figure out, okay, now there's this moment to breathe in the plot. Who could it be? And I think that they do such a good job with that, like leading you through the murder mystery. And having uh, Lady Van Tassel be the ultimate villain in the end, it's sort of funny to have her be the be the one uh, because there's there's very little ever suggested evidence for it being her. <laughs> But it's it's sort of that quintessential last minute reveal. But in that, and I, I would like to hear your thoughts on this. Thinking of it as a first time viewer, how likely were you to believe that Katrina was at all responsible? <laughs> oh, I didn't think it was her at all. Even when he pretty much deduced all the evidence points to Katrina being the one. Just just from her overall demeanor, it didn't seem like she had the motivation to murder all these people, or I guess have them murdered. And what I know it's, in- it's interesting about Lady Van Tassel is that she's supposed to be dead at that point. Mm-hmm. Baltus comes to the church and he says to Katrina, your, your stepmother is dead. And they do have this kind of lead into that where the horseman rides up to their house and she's out front doing something in the garden or something and he like raises his sword up in front of her but they don't show him beheading her and she's the only one that they don't show that because it's fake (laughs) so uh you don't really i I didn't even think about that until after the fact but it is kind of a a dead giveaway (laughs) that she's not actually dead yeah exactly and i think that there's a a a lot that goes on uh with that particular side of the film it's not one to shy away from showing you the kill uh the the only other one that it doesn't show in the film directly i believe is the is the child of the midwife and that's obviously for 
for reasons of sensibilities sensibility <laughs> and yeah and not showing that on camera right well you know what i i did see that tim burton i guess with with some of the the writers he said why it <laughs> He's like, it bothers me that that children are always spared in these types of movies. Why is that true? So he, he kind of made a point of having some child murder in this movie. Yeah, I don't agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the reason that I don't agree with it, too, is because they invent the characters specifically for that scene to happen. Because from what we had seen of the, of the movie up to then, we knew that the midwife was a person and we knew that her husband was a person. And it's later revealed that the reason that the midwife and the husband of the midwife were killed in the first place is because they heard the rumor about the affair and the child and uh, they were connected to to Lady Von Tassel in that way but then they invented this child to be another another element of horror uh, it's like when you it's like when they kill the dog in the horror movie it, it doesn't really add to the plot but it ups the discomfortingness of it right and I think that that the whole family that the Killian's uh, I think that that was just it was it's filler. They they're like we we need more death in this little town. We need more characters to then slaughter uh, off during this plot. So I think it was just another thing to fill time with. And that was one of the action sequences where he you know Killian uh, actually does fight back. And he this is when the horseman's like wielding the dual axes. <laughs> it's kind of this. Bra- yeah, and then Brom fights him and also dies. Yeah, it's it was it was something to just drive drive forward. It it actually does set up the way in which Ichabod is injured and then allows for the you know quintessential uh, detective recovery period where then Katrina was able to uh, draw the seal of protection underneath of his bed because it's not until after he awakes from that that he sees it. I think that it, it's a good way of of facilitating that to happen uh to have him sort of go through that fever dream recollection because it also allows us to then see what actually happened to his mother because it it gives us another dream sequence it reminds me a lot actually of the the sherlock holmes movie right yeah it does it does have a similar feel to it speaking of the gothic elements once again there was a whole lot of red white and black which is also very tim burton uh to do but it's just there's an astounding amount of those three colors and it seemed like again it seemed like it was almost flipping the script here whereas you think of white as being this more pure and good kind of color and black maybe being a little more neutral but then red as we've discussed in uh previous episodes red is usually that's the color of the devil and that's it's bad it's this kind of off-putting violent color and it seems like a lot of the good things in this movie a lot of the like the cardinals are red and that's considered to be a symbol of good throughout the movie i i i agree with what you're saying um i don't necessarily think it's a good thing i think it's sort of a symbol of truth because he talks about truth is not always appearance with the optical illusion and then when he's at the tree and he's hacking into the tree and the blood is coming out that is him finding the truth in the situation and realizing Mm -hmm. that the tree is a portal to hell and that everything going on with the headless horseman is real i think the same thing is even said when he's doing the autopsy on the the widow um who was with child and it has the the blood splurred out and it's supposed to be this comedic moment but it's also when he emerges from that and he's covered in red he reveals the truth about her situation to everyone in the town it it translates for for me at least to this is everything this is this is real uh even serving as a a reminder uh for him when he is 
in the dream world and he goes into uh, that back torture room of the church and he pricks his hand and then he he looks at his hand and it's bleeding. That was a real event. And then when he wakes up from it, his hand is still slightly bleeding as if the, the wounds had been renewed. I like that interpretation that the red is truth because also in, in the dream sequences where when he goes into that room with all the torture devices, that the door to that room is bright red. So that, mm-hmm. that makes sense that he's kind of figuring out things in, in the dream. And then also uh, Katrina's room is is very red <laughs> inside. There's I don't remember when, when it was in the plot, but he's you know, she got injured or something and he's like checking up on her in her room and, and there's just all this red. And I wonder, because Katrina's character has this kind of almost omniscience to to her like she she she's very calm the whole time and she seems to know like you get this impression that she knows more than Ichabod even though Ichabod's the one investigating everything that's because she she knows the truth or because they try to frame her for, for the purpose of the plot <laughs> I, I don't know if it's necessarily that uh she knows the truth or, or that she knows more than Ichabod but I I agree it, it paints her in that knowledgeable uh or wise light saying that she is able to look upon the things around her through an objective lens. And I think that there there are moments in the film where we're supposed to understand Ichabod to be this objective, scientific, reasonable character. But ultimately, he lacks a lot of knowledge about the town, about the legend of Sleepy Hollow, about the Headless Horseman, and about life in general. And I think that that's where Katrina really comes in, and she's the she's the streetwise. She's the one with the, the knowledge about the way life truly is, seeing it really objectively because Ichabod is obviously blinded by his own scientific intention and bias. Right. Yeah, he, I mean, Ichabod, what, what Ichabod brings to the table is basically just deductive reasoning. <laughs> and and even then, he's still trying to fit what is happening into his own framework. He, he, he doesn't let things just sort of uh, happen and pass him by. He is actively trying to shape it to his design. So I, I agree. I think that Katrina is is really more that truthful embodiment right so i have a question this this just occurred to me mm-hmm. so lady van tassel is the one in charge of who the headless horseman kills you know she she yeah. has his skull so then she is in in control of uh him as as a spirit and so she has all these people killed so that she gets the 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 van garrett inheritance and has her vengeance on those those people that wronged her family all those years ago so this guy ichabod comes mm-hmm. to town to investigate and and as time goes on gets closer and closer to figuring you out why doesn't she just have him killed before then going about business as usual trying to get her inheritance like how how are those <laughs> how are those deaths more pressing than the guy who's finding stuff out about her that's a good question and actually i think it's because she has ichabod as as a pawn because i I believe that she knows that he thinks that it's katrina and i think that she knows that he doesn't suspect her actually well and that i I guess when when he does start suspecting her that's when she's uh off in the woods with who was it again the reverend steenwick and then the next morning she makes a point to then show her hand cut to ichabod and that's kind of like the oh when, when they have the body later of uh, Lady Van Tassel that's kind of the, the identifying mark is that she has this cut on her hand so it's almost like she staged that mm-hmm. instead of just having him killed which still is 
baffling to me. <laughs> Why wouldn't but you just I, do that? <laughs> but I think that that was uh, another instance where that makes Reverend Steenwick look bad. And I think that it's not until uh, Balthus Van Tassel comes in and Ichabod deliberately backs up her story about the kitchen knife and about how and, and doesn't say anything that she kind of has him in, in the spider web. He's not going to reveal anything and ultimately whatever he does uh, come up with, it's going to be directed towards Balthus or it's going to be directed towards Steenwick instead of her because she was she was just a nurse beforehand. As, as far as he knows, she's totally innocent. Right, but my point is cover your bases. <laughs> just, like, just, just be safe. Right, 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 right. But let's think about it. It seems like she also has to have like articles of their clothing to be able to perform the ritual. For example, she needs Katrina's hair. So we we don't know, I guess, the the bounds of the the paranormal requirements. Maybe there's something about Ichabod that doesn't allow him to be directly hunted by the uh by the headless horseman. Maybe it's that that book of witchcraft that uh Katrina gave him. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, do we ever really see Lady Van Tassel interact with Ichabod before that scene? There's where it's right after when he's hurt by the horseman when with the scene with Brom dying, uh he gets hurt and then he wakes up in bed and Lady Van Tassel is like nursing him back to health and he goes oh like what's what happened with your your housemates or whatever that normally would be doing this job and she said they all left because they're afraid of the horsemen so there is just that moment before and actually that would have been a good time to have taken something of his that could be used yeah I mean this movie is not without its faults (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, and, and speaking of its faults, let's talk about the horsemen. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. So I, I don't think that it's, they didn't like do the horsemen poorly. I think in fact, the way that they did the horsemen in this like kind of uh, vaguely campy manner was purely intentional. And so the horseman is supposed to be a Hessian, right? So for those those listening who don't know, a Hessian is or, or was a German mercenary who served with the British army in the Revolutionary War. So he's this you know soldier for hire who was fighting American soldiers, and it's, I guess it's, it would be the American soldiers that then killed him uh, with his own sword. Yeah, and for that, he wants to take his revenge on the Americans in the, this little Dutch town. Right, and it's like this classic vengeful spirit trope of you know, he lost his head, so now he's collecting the heads of his victims in death. So it's and, and <laughs> the, the kind of, the the one kind of neat thing about the horseman is that that detail of the neck wounds being cauterized, and I think it's Baltus says that it's from the hellfire that is like on his sword. So I thought that was kind of a neat touch of okay, so maybe there is some some supernatural unless this guy's got a lightsaber or something <laughs> I, I would agree that i don't necessarily think that he was the the uh, best iteration of the the horseman that they could have done but he definitely was an interesting figure uh, in the way that he was portrayed in this in the film as as this uh agent of evil that was being controlled by lady van tassel which is a very interesting adaptation from the original story uh i have a question for you then where do we rank the Headless Horseman in sort of the compendium of villainry? Do we consider him to be the villain of the movie? So you're asking if it's, whether it's the Horseman or if it's Lady Van Tassel? Yeah. I think it's both. You think She's it's both? using him. I mean, he's, from, from the flashback when they're, they're kind of telling that origin story of the Horseman, he does not look well-adjusted. 
<laughs> he looks like he very much enjoys murdering people. <laughs> and I think they straight up say that, right? Yeah, he was good at his like, job. He, yeah, he, he was he was like this really skilled assassin, but he also what was it? He just enjoyed killing, I think is what they said. And yeah. so I think he truly is the villain. He's no good person just like killing. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it comes down to uh, the the creation of uh, of a monster, um, and so I, I wanted to sort of talk about that idea of of creating uh, a, a monster in in horror movie films, and and sort of how this one uh, fits into it. Because I would say that this isn't uh, this isn't the first movie where there has been a monster or creature or killer that has been under the control of someone else who is pulling all of the strings, and I found this particular instance it sort of makes the horseman feel less scary to me knowing that he is being controlled by um lady van tassel and i was wondering if you felt the same way that the that potentially part of what multiple viewings of this movie do is that they remove the audience from feeling at all afraid of the horseman and the reason i'm let me let me clarify the reason I'm asking is because when I saw it the first time I would say yeah I was probably scared of the headless horseman um and I would say that in in even the cartoon versions of this that I've seen when it's the first time you're a little bit more afraid of the horseman but then coming back to this movie so many years later and already knowing that it's Lady Van Tassel that's controlling it I feel removed from the horseman because I don't know Lady Van Tassel and I've never interacted. And therefore, because I've never interacted with her, I don't have to fear the horseman. Do you feel that at all? Uh, I, yeah, I, I would agree there because especially since she is a mortal person with, I mean, questionable conscience, but she has a conscience. <laughs> and as, as opposed to just this ventral spirit, just wrecking this town with, you know, willy nilly, no regard for any rules or anything. And then when she, when it's revealed that she's the one pulling the strings on him uh, and she, and, and it's revealed that there is this method behind the killings then it does become less scary. You, you know, it's, it's this whole thing of, okay, well then these certain people might be okay. Like Ichabod and Katrina might be okay because these are the char- these are the main characters that we're supposed to be attached to. Yeah. So it does make it less scary. It may, yeah, I think that it makes it less it makes it less scary. And as far as this film being a horror film, it, it is classified as a horror film, and I think that there are quintessential horror elements to it. Uh the monster is not the thing that I am really afraid of in this movie. The Headless Horseman's not who I'm uh waking up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat having dreamt about because uh, having having um, the knowledge that he's being controlled by Lady Van Tassel sort of takes away that uh, element for me. I don't know if you feel the same way, but I think that it, it's a little level of removal. Right. I think, I mean, what, what creates that level of removal, I think, is as soon as you, you take this this being who seems to have no regard for the rules of society, and so, suddenly it's revealed that there there is a rule even when you give it one rule that it follows, it becomes less scary because you could say, all right, this is how I avoid angering this demon and getting uh, killed or, you know, this ghost or whatever he is. Uh, There, there's, there's a way around it. Suddenly there is a logical, there's a logical, not explanation, but there's a logical solution. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, we, we talked about uh, other movies that we want to do for this. And actually it makes me think of um, the strangers. And the reason that for me, The Strangers is such an intensely 
terrifying movie all culminates with when the lead actors in that movie says, why are you doing this to us? And one of the strangers responds with, because you were home. That to me is horrifying that there is a creature that is, or that there is a a villain that is killing without regard and without sort of rule, but just because. And I think if you're, watching sleepy hollow for the first time and you see the headless horseman and the headless horseman's motivation is taking revenge on this dutch new england town that feels a lot scarier that feels a lot more personal because we're we're viewing the movie and we're we're like oh i don't live in this town but you instead become a part of the everyone in this town there's a lot more sense of i guess community in in thought and then once you boil it down to, oh, everybody else in this town is fine. It's just these select people who have to worry. It becomes less communal and more individualistic. Right. And I think that, so so we have this, this theme or idea of truth in this movie. And I think that <laughs> in, in a horror movie, what creates the horror, or I guess the, the potency of the horror, is this ratio of truth to fear. And the more truth you have, the less fear you have. Right. And, and vice versa. So in this movie, as the plot goes on, if I was to, to graph this out, uh, you would see the truth going up and you'd see the fear going down. <laughs> That's why towards the end of the movie, they have these intense action sequences to give you more of a thrill to simulate fear. And I guess fear for their lives instead of fear of the horsemen. And that's, mm-hmm. and you mentioned the strangers <laughs> that's there in that movie. You do kind of get this sense of truth going up as the plot goes down. But then that line happens that you mentioned uh, mm-hmm. of because you were home. And then <laughs> the sense of truth just goes <laughs> negative and fear goes all the way up and you mm-hmm. go, wow, there's, they're just, to to quote what is it the dark night or whatever you just want to see the world burn <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're, they're, that's what's scariest yeah and i i think that uh an element of modern horror that that happens and you know if you treat this like a classic horror film there is a, that element of uh, desensitization that we've had as people who have grown up with terrifying terrifying movies i mean we talked about the thing which was before our time i, I mean if you look at alien if you look at nightmare on elm street and friday the 13th and reanimator all of these things that sort of happened before us and I, by us i mean zach and i there's a difference because we have grown up with this type of horror versus the the 1940s 1950s aesthetic of horror movies which was more atmospheric and more about character creation because, to be honest, Frankenstein never did anything that I would consider woefully scary. Dracula <laughs> never did anything in those movies that, you know, made me nervous or would scare me or or the Wolfman even. And I would go so far as to say a lot of the William Castle movies wouldn't have really given me reason for for terror or for pause or for fear. And if you think about this movie, if you took this movie and you enhanced the black and white of it, you just made it pure black and white, you put it back in that time period, I think this movie would be way scary. I feel like Tim Burton very much intended for this film to be retrospective, almost. Mm -hmm. It's kind of bringing these modern elements into a classic tale in this old setting. 
Yeah. I mean, and it's it's so clear who he's referencing and who he he wants you to to know that he knows. I mean, I, I mentioned it uh, offhand, but the end of the movie where they have the entire sort of climactic uh, moment in the windmill is such an homage to how they kill uh, or or rather they they attempt to kill Frankenstein in the original Frankenstein movies uh, for Universal. Uh, and I think that 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 windmill image is so often replicated in uh, Tim Burton films. And and in fact, my favorite iteration of it is probably when it happens in Frankenweenie. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which at times I think is more scary than this movie is, um, and it's a cartoon. <laughs> but they they do it they do it again there, and I mean it's it's down to like every element of that windmill that you're viewing the how how tattered it is and how how decayed it is. It all just looks like the quintessential Frankenstein windmill. That scene does feel like it's almost from a different movie. It, yeah. it feels a little out of place. I mean, it's not not in, not so much in in setting but in pacing it just it, it feels like a different movie i don't know how else to put it it's really clear where he's getting a lot of his references and i think that that's why it fits so much better into that horror aesthetic which is an important part of horror movie history but I, I mentioned mario bava earlier there's also when ichabod's in his dream and he he sees his mother in the iron maiden torture device that concept and that image is almost shot for shot from one of Baba's movies, uh, Black Sunday. Yeah, I know about that. And, and yeah, and that one actually, uh, Tim Burton was he, he he had wanted to remake that movie, but I guess it never went through. I guess he uh, exercised his ability to to imitate it here. <laughs> Let's talk about the score of this movie, Zach. All right. What did you think about it? I loved it because I love anything that uh, he does. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's just so good at matching what's going on on screen. The score of this movie is, of course, by longtime collaborator of Tim Burton, Danny Elfman. I think that Danny Elfman just such, does such a good job of orchestrating and writing for what is going on on screen, just just to match. Uh, so he's just such a good cinematic composer. Yeah, and he's very thematic in everything that he does. Uh, it's always about uh, adaptations and development of themes. And I think that uh, in this movie in particular, it plays into that same sort of uh, technique of, of using themes and, and twisting and turning them so that they have different meanings. For example, his uh, his love theme for Katrina and, and Ichabod, which is in essence very similar to the overall uh, horseman theme, like the uh, the horror theme. And actually when, when Lady Van Tassel and Reverend Steenwick are having an affair, there's that same sort of uh, love theme, but it's been like horribly distorted and made ugly to you know represent what they're doing that being said i think that this is uh and i wanted to mention him this is a development from christopher young who is a film composer who worked on hellraiser and christopher young was part of the movement that introduced the the big gothic score that like huge orchestra huge choir sound where everything uh, is almost this like catholic mass powerful gothic sound which uh began from from subverting the the traditional electronic score that was uh, that was becoming really prominent at the time. He he used Hellraiser to take it in a new direction, and I think that uh, they really felt the effects of Hellraiser all the way up to this movie. Yeah, there were a lot of moments where you hear some voice come in, and 
um, it does help to create this more unsettling uh, kind of feel. Like, it, for example, when uh, what's the kid? young young Mosbeth and uh, Ichabod are going to see that witch, and they hear they hear her kind of singing to herself, or I guess kind of chanting almost, and it fits so well with the soundtrack that at first I wasn't sure <laughs> if it was part of the soundtrack or part of what was going on in the movie. Uh, but then they they seem so freaked out by this. Okay, so it's it's a sound that's happening in the movie, but it's just it's so integrated. So I have a I have a question, Zach. You are a competent musician. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Uh, what would you say is probably the most common quotation in horror movies like this? Most common quotation? Yeah. Like, what are they quoting? Oh, probably Psycho. Like the... the ooh, uh, ooh, 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 oh, ooh. oh, 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 I know what you mean. Okay. Yep. What is it? I thought you, I thought you meant quoting of a different horror movie soundtrack. Probably DSE Ray. Yeah, that's it. That's what I was going to say. So I have, I have to ask, did you hear the DSC Ray in this? Uh, there was. there. It was being played during the church scene, yeah, right? Of course yeah. it was. <laughs> okay. I just had to bring it up because it's in it's in every it's in everything. <laughs> it's in like every horror movie. I don't know if it's been in uh, I don't know if it's been in all the ones that we've watched so far, but it was definitely it was definitely in this one. I think it was in The Conjuring. It was, yeah. It's it's so it's so common, and it's now to the point where whenever I hear the C Ray, just mentally my mind shuts down. And I'm just like, okay, cool. Oh, that's so weird that you mentioned that because. It was stuck in my head earlier today. I mean, I don't know how it how it's not stuck in your head constantly. It feels like it's in everything that's uh, ever been written. Um, oh, it's catchy. I, yeah, and I think that uh, I think that uh, Tim Burton has used it in every movie he's made. And I won't I won't fault uh, I won't fault Tim Burton for one of those examples. And it's Sweeney Todd, which uh, the DSE ray that is used in Sweeney Todd is the direct fault of. Stephen Sondheim. Um, so I'm not going to fault Tim Burton on that one. I'm going to, he gets a pass for that one. Uh, it's, it's Stephen Sondheim who I have beef with. So well, I guess it wouldn't, wouldn't it more, do you think, do you think that um, Tim Burton is requesting that DSC would be put in or Danny Elfman's just doing it? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. I would almost bet that it is Elfman. Really? See, I would have said the opposite. I, I would think that really? Tim Burton would say, all right, this is where I want that. That DSE Ray, just because Tim Burton seems to be... Well, I, I guess I don't know too much about how Danny Elfman, how, how he works. Yeah, uh, and how much how much control he exerts over uh, the actual music elements of the film is is totally up for debate, too. Like I said, I, I, always, I always just think that the DSE Ray, uh, it comes into these movies uh, that have this sort of gothic style out of necessity. Because the the turnaround for the score creation and the, the you know, composition is so fast that it's it's hard to come up with like a good original memorable church melody and why why waste your time on that when you can just throw in an arrangement of the DSE ray and then really put your energy and effort into the other things like the uh like the love theme in this movie which is really original and and very elfman all right. Do you have a Do you have trivia? Do you have questions for me? All right. So we got some trivia here, and I came up with the traditional pun. So it's called "Ick a bod e without a head." <laughs> sounds like Ick a bod. <laughs> oh, it's so bad. I apologize, but you I tried of it. so hard for that one. This again was yeah, <laughs> lots of effort, but. You know. <laughs> So the the horse's name was Gunpowder, right? Right. 
what was the horse actor's name? So here's multiple choice. You got A, Goldeneye, B, Gary, C, Trooper, or D, Bacardi. I'm going to go with Goldeneye. I think it's Goldeneye. You're right. You know your horse names. <laughs> and Johnny Depp actually adopted Goldeneye when he heard that Goldeneye was going to be put down after production. <laughs> oh, that's great. All right, next question. After being cast as the Headless Horseman, Christopher Walken brought one concern to Tim Burton. What was this concern? Was it about him having to do the fight choreography without being able to see? Nope. Ooh, what was it? It was... It was actually that he didn't know how to ride a horse. He had never ridden a horse before oh, uh, really? being cast as the Headless Horseman, who is most of the time on a horse. On a <laughs> so, horse, yeah. So they got him some lessons. <laughs> All right, well, next one. Uh, in the novel, how did the he- Headless Horseman lose his head? Oh, it was a cannon blast. Yep, you got it, okay. <laughs> but the, in the movie, they did get the part about it was during a battle as a result of the Revolutionary War. So, yeah, that's that's all I got. So... Uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this episode of Watch No Evil. We'll be back next week with yet another episode on yet another horror movie. Uh, this is Zach. And this is Matt. And we'll catch you on the next one.